How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. All right, welcome back, everybody. We got part two of our interview with Jordan today. Jordan, you want to say hi? Hey, guys. All right, I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, What you brought up last time was fairly interesting, to say the least. I think it was definitely some cool things you got to see, and uh, I enjoyed listening to what you had to talk about. Glad to hear it. All right, so before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check the Facebook page for information on the episodes. Uh, Don't hesitate to ask questions and uh, stay up to date on the Facebook page for information concerning the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for the podcast by donating on our Anchor website, the awesome podcast server we use to make all of these episodes possible. And then at the end today, we're going to give some shout outs to those of you who have already liked the Facebook page, and we thank you for the growth it has already been experiencing. All right, I don't have anything else to say. You want you want to say anything before we start, Jordan? Um, I, we might as well just jump in. All right, let's do it. Should be good. All right. I hope you guys are going to enjoy today's episode. Uh, last time we were kind of talking about the the beginning of your trip and what you were doing. Uh, what do you think uh, you're going to bring up today and what do you want to share with us today? Yeah, so instead of just going day to day today, I think we're going to focus more specifically on the Jewish revolts and the Jewish Roman wars. Um, in particular, two really interesting battles that happened and were also kind of mysterious and we're still not 100% sure how they actually played out. Um, yeah, the first, we'll talk about Gamla, which was a uh, major defeat for the Jews in the north, and then Masada, which is the much more well-known um, defeat in the south that kind of marked the beginning of the exile that lasted all the way to the 1900s. Yep. Um, I love Masada. I've read about that so many times in so many different places. That's a... That was a really interesting battle. Yeah, it's an incredible sight, too. All right, sweet. Looking forward to it. Uh, the Roman and Jewish wars are very interesting, to say the least. Very, yes. I've... And it's, I don't know why the Jews even bothered, because, man, they, they never really stood a chance. <laughs> like, Rome was just too... They're just too good at engineering. They're too ahead of their time. Like to go up against them, that's that just shows a lot of a lot of courage. Yep. There's a reason the saying goes that all roads lead to Rome. Yes. They were very yeah, it's, good it's at not by accident very good at what they, they did. Basically took over the world. Pretty much. All of Europe and beyond, pretty much. Yeah. Oh yeah. Roman history is very interesting too, and uh, especially uh, we're going to talk about the impact that it played on the Jewish culture, specifically in Israel. That interaction that they had was uh, was very interesting, to say the least. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I mean, Rome kind of set the stage for Christianity to explode like it did. But yeah, leading up to that, the relationship between Rome and Judaism was strained at best yeah there were so many things and uh they could be very little things that would just tick them off 
<laughs> yeah, and then the build up over time, they just finally got tired of it and were like, "We're either gonna kick them out or we're gonna die trying." Yeah, and they definitely did die trying. <laughs> that they did. All right, sweet. Let's get into it. Want to share your? What was the first one you were gonna mention? Yeah, so we're going to jump in with Gamla. Uh, that was the earlier battle. It happened around 67 AD. So Gamla is a really interesting place. The name actually means camel. Um, I can't remember if it means camel in Greek or in Hebrew, but it's one of those. Um, and the reason it's called that is because the hill that the city is built on looks like a camel's hump. Interesting. Um, it's kind of this massive bowl of mountains, and in the middle of the bowl is something almost like uh, like if you were to zoom out and look at it big picture, it, it almost looks like a like lemon juicer, <laughs> um, just kind of right in the middle of this bowl. So actually, that the hill that Gamla's on is shorter than the surrounding mountains. So that didn't put them in a great position against Rome and their engineering might, because um, Rome had the high ground right. from far away, at least. So that really played into what made this battle so interesting. Um, but it was especially unique in that it began with Rome having to retreat, and that never happened to Rome. Um, so they made a first push and it didn't work. And, uh, yeah, that's, if, you know, you look at Roman history, especially around that time and their military, like Rome didn't mess up. Oh, yeah. and they were they spot messed on. Up. They were spot yeah. on. You would, you would execute the soldier who screwed up in one small thing. Yeah. So Gamla's, I think Gamla maybe gave the, uh, the people some hope. I mean, it didn't end well for them, but. Yeah. The fact that they were able to resist the Roman legions, at least in the first push, meant that Rome wasn't quite as invincible as they seemed. The fact that they retreated shows some good morale for the Jews there alone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, Gamla is way up in the north. It's a stronghold in Galilee um, during the first Jewish revolt. And it, it does actually have some striking parallels to the later battle at Masada, at least as told by the historian Josephus, yep. uh, who was likely present at this battle after recently being captured by the Romans himself. So Josephus is really the main link between these two. Um, he recorded both. He was a Jew, uh, captured by the Romans, and later considered a traitor by the Jews, because he, in once captured by the Romans, he basically said, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. Um, and, you know, became one of their main historians for these wars. Um, in fact, he wrote really the the defining history. Um, and the only real details we have are from his account. So that's why we say we don't really know for sure what happened. Because especially later at Masada, like he couldn't have known all the things that he writes about. But he writes about him, and that's the only record we have. And so we're like, I guess this is what happened. Yeah, you got to work um, with what you have. Right. But it, it, it is kind of mysterious. Um, so yeah, Josephus is at Gamla. He apparently is also at Masada later. Um, the story of Gamla 
is a little less dramatic than Masada, but no less interesting. So it begins with, like we said, uh, the rebels at Gamla repelling the first Roman assault. Um, so ferociously, in fact, that the Roman legions retreated, and that never happened. They broke through the city wall, but the fighting inside the city was so intense and so chaotic that Rome pulled out because they were losing too many soldiers. It was hand-to-hand combat, jumping from roof to roof. And because the city is on the hill that it's on, it's really built up in steps along one side of the hill. And the other side is so steep, you can't have anything there. So, yeah, they're basically just jumping from level to level, almost like you would imagine a spy movie happening, but on a larger scale with armies doing this. Yeah, right. I was going to say, um, that sounded very Running around like on the rooftops. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's a madhouse. Um, so Rome pulls out. They regroup. And uh, according to Josephus, that's where Vespasian, the Roman commander and future emperor mm-hmm. of Rome, who was leading the assault, had to give a rousing speech to rally his men um, for the second wave. And uh, as with Masada later, there ends up being this weird thing with a shift in the wind that spells disaster for the rebels. And so it begins with um, yeah, Rome is, they're working on burning down uh, a gate or something like that. And the wind seems to shift in the rebels' favor, and it's burning the Roman siege works um, because act of the way of that God. it's blowing, like an act of God. And then all of a sudden, it turns on the rebels, and it becomes pretty apparent that God is not on their side. <laughs> he might actually be on the side of the Romans. So it started off looking pretty good, but it ends up almost seeming to show God's hand at work in judgment on his people. Um, so yeah, the the city is still there. Um, the ruins have been unearthed. Um, you can walk there. It's part of one, or it's part of um, Israel's extensive national park system. Oh yeah. Um, and we ended up walking through the city. You can stand in the place in the wall where the Romans breached the defenses of the city, um, which is pretty impressive because that was a thick wall. Um, and yeah, it's just been to stand in the spot where it all fell apart. It's pretty crazy. Still like 2,000 years later. You can even climb to the top of the camel's hump, so to speak, and get some pretty impressive views. Um, yeah, sure. It's a little treacherous up there. You're just climbing on giant boulders above a steep drop-off, um, but it's well worth it. Um, yeah, and, and there's just pot shards laying around everywhere. We even asked at one point, like, why they would leave so much history here. And our guide at the time was telling us, archaeologists have already combed through all this and anything they've left behind, it's just, it's trash as far as they're concerned. So we all took home a bunch of pottery. Yeah, I'm trying to find the one that you gave me. Is that where you got mine? Yeah, I believe the pottery I gave you is from Gamla. I know it's somewhere over here. I was trying to find it. That's awesome, though. Yeah. Yeah, so part of the interesting uh, piece in the story, too, is Rome deployed some pretty heavy, heavy weaponry uh, against the rebels. And like I mentioned before, they had the high ground on the surrounding mountains. 
And so they brought in ballistae, which are basically Roman catapults. Um, and they would shoot these massive bolts um, at the city and the people inside of it. And so they found in their excavations tons of ballistae bolts, um, or these really like short but thick arrows um, that Josephus says were so powerful they would pierce a rock on contact. Jeez. So we know he maybe tends to exaggerate a little bit. Yeah, maybe but, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So Rome had that going on. They're firing basically heavy artillery down at the people of Gamla and then having this intense hand-to-hand combat. Um, and it doesn't end well for the Jews. In fact, it seems like they may have realized the tide had turned against them and then started throwing their wives and children over the steep end of the cliff to kill them so that the Romans couldn't capture and torture them. Yeah. Um, No, I've heard those. That got pretty uh, dark and intense, too. They did very similar stuff during the Crusades. They would cut the woman's hair so they wouldn't be targets of the soldiers invading. And yeah, that was that was brutal because they knew uh, they were in control of their own life only until the soldiers made it through the walls. Yeah, and they, you know, would rather have their loved ones die and be captured by the Romans exactly. and have to suffer that kind of fate. Um, and there were as many as nine thousand people inside the city when this happened, at least according to Josephus's account. Um, later historians have said it was maybe more like two to 4,000, but that's still a pretty significant number for back then. And it's at least two to four times the size of the rebel force at Masada. Wow. wow. Yeah. So pretty gruesome end. Rome won. They always won um, in the end. And uh, that was the last really rebel stronghold in the northern part of uh Judea at the time. I can't even imagine living during a, a siege like that. You gotta imagine what some of those people went through. Must have been terrible. Oh, and just the the constant stress of knowing your death is at hand. Exactly. Like you're seeing these armies encamped on the hills around you. You know there's no way out, and you're just waiting for the end. Like that's that has to be terrifying. Yeah. And for it to just drag on for you know, weeks or months makes it all the worse. And they they probably knew their chances of winning too just because of how big Rome's empire was at the time. So uh, they probably knew they had little chance too. Well, it doesn't help that there were as many as three Roman legions surrounding them too. Right. Like one Roman legion was enough to probably take them out, but there were three. Yeah. (laughs) Some amazing stuff that uh, history teaches us. You can imagine trying to live through these events. And uh, what you got to do is uh, particularly amazing because you actually get to see the places where they were and see it for yourself and walk around there, get a feeling for what they went through. Yeah, I've been to some pretty old places in my life prior to that trip, but... I mean, this this was a whole different deal. So the history I had experienced before maybe went back 500, 1,000 years, and that felt like a really long time. But in Israel, you're going back two to 4,000 years. 
Yeah. And that's just completely a different experience. It's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, let's uh, let's jump ahead a few years to Masada, which yeah, is a much more well-known uh, battle. So, but before we get into Masada, I think it's going to be worth mentioning a little bit more detail about Roman engineering, because that factors in heavily here. So, to give you a better sense for what Roman engineering could do, I want to tell you a little bit about Caesarea Maritima. Yeah, I've heard of Caesarea. Which is on the Mediterranean Sea, and that's actually where they found the pilot stone that we mentioned in the previous episode, mm-hmm. the stone mentioning right. Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea. Um, and it was a major uh, port city built up by Herod the Great, who definitely earned his title by being a just incredibly prolific builder. Um, really, no one deserves that you know, appendage to their name as much as he does from that point in history, because he built so much stuff, not just the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, but Caesarea Maritima and uh, places like Beth Shan and, you know, just all over. Herod's influence can still be seen to this day, but at Caesarea Maritima in particular, he, uh, he made good use of Roman technological advances. So back then, in order to build a port, you really need a natural harbor, and there was no natural harbor at Caesarea Maritima or anywhere else nearby. Um, so what the Romans do is construct one themselves that's big enough to hold something like a hundred ships. Um, and in order to do that, in and around the water of the Mediterranean Sea, they made use of a brand new technology known as hydroconcrete. Which is mind-boggling, because when you look at that period in history when they did this, the rest of the world didn't even have regular concrete until 300 years later. Right. And here Rome is working with hydroconcrete that can cure underwater, which is just ridiculous. Like, they're hundreds of years ahead of their time with this technology, and they did impressive things with it. Easily. Yeah, so that site then becomes the Roman capital of the province of the province of Judea and in true Herodian form also had a temple built to Augustus and Roma um, to honor the emperor. Right. Um, interestingly enough, there's a, a verse in the book of Romans where Paul's writing to believers in Rome later on and he tells them to outdo one another in showing honor, which seems like kind of an obscure thing to say. Um, we know from history that Roman vassal kings did this with each other. They would try and outdo one another in honoring the emperor. So it was like, it's a common build theme. the biggest temple for yep. Caesar or the best statue or whatever. It's a very um, common theme throughout history. Egypt did the yes. same thing uh, with the pyramids. Their pyramids got gradually bigger. They did the same thing uh, with the Mayans and the Aztecs and the Incans uh, growing their pyramids and city complexes bigger and bigger. So that's a that's a pretty normal thing and the yeah. theme of history. <laughs> well, it's so interesting, too, because it also informs the way we interpret the Bible, um, because that gives us a whole different understanding of what Paul's saying when he says, outdo one another in showing honor. He's saying, man, really, like, you've seen what these other kings have done 
right. to try and show honor to an emperor, like try and outdo one another in showing honor to each other. That gives a whole like another level to the kind of life in community and love for your brothers and sisters that he's talking to the Romans about in that letter. Yeah, give you more of the context behind that. Yeah. So yeah, Caesarea Maritima, huge, impressive. It had everything. It had an amphitheater. It had a hippodrome. Um, all that stuff the is hippodrome. still there. The amphitheater in particular, like you can sit in the seats overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Amazing. Um, I believe there are even uh, concerts and shows that still happen there. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Um, which is pretty impressive. They do so the Rome same thing the in last. the Byzantine aqueducts. Yes, and oh my gosh, the aqueduct there. That aqueduct that brings water to Caesarea Maritima stretches for like hundreds of miles wow. and is engineered to a precise degree of like 0.5 degrees of elevation the whole way through mm -hmm. so that water would constantly flow and you didn't have to have a major elevation change over these hundreds of miles. It's just, it blows your mind the that 2,000 years amazing. ago, Rome was so technologically advanced they could engineer something with that kind of precision on that massive a scale. Yeah, exactly. I've seen some of the images of some of those aqueducts and the structures that they used to move the water from place to place, and it's amazing. They built almost entire bridges over areas just to move the water. With oh, the yeah. Perfect arches, and it's crazy, the engineering skills that they had back then. Water is critically important in that region because okay. it's a scarce resource. Um, if you don't you know, care for that well and uh, store it up in cisterns and have aqueducts to transport it to areas where there's not as much access, you can't survive. That's why entire wars were started over uh, over wells in uh, the Turkish lands and, uh, and the Sultanate territories we talked yeah, about water that. is a critical resource i think we talked about that a little bit in the templar episode and uh especially in the middle east water was like the most important thing and uh, that was the first thing that you secured when building a city or planning a city yeah actually speaking of water that's part of what's so impressive about masada so masada this was a fortress built up again by herod the great interesting thing about Herod the Great is he may have been a great builder, but he was also a super paranoid dude. So he had fortress after fortress after fortress all lined up along this escape route to his homeland of Idumea, uh, which was south and east of Judea at the time. Um, Masada is the southernmost stronghold, the strongest of all of them. So it seems like what he was thinking is, especially with Herodian being one of the first of them up north mm -hmm. near Jerusalem, um, he's just giving himself a, an escape route and increasingly impregnable fortresses along the way to make sure nothing ever happens to him. Um, yeah, and he just went all out on this. Masada, it sits on top of an isolated mountain, which is just a flat top. And it can't be accessed from anywhere around. So it's just kind of sticking up out of the ground, really high up, a couple hundred feet, I believe. Um, and it's right near the Dead Sea. So if you were to bring an army there, they're not really going to be able to last very long in siege against you. 
Um, they have no way to access the even the walls of Masada, let alone the inside of Masada. Right. Um, and somehow Rome still managed to take it. Um, yeah, so Herod, he builds up this massive palatial complex all across the top of it. And there's even this stepstone um, edge to the mountain, and he builds a three-tiered palace, which is just insane. And one of the tiers, he just has this large colonnaded pool. Uh, another is the sleeping quarters, and another is more like a palatial reception area. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just impressive and pretty crazy. And because it's by the Dead Sea, again, water is a scarce resource. You cannot take water from the Dead Sea. It's so salty, it'll kill you. Um, yeah, right. Because it kills anything else that tries to live there. Um, and so Herod engineered this ingenious system um, of aqueducts that would actually collect flash flood water and redirect it into cisterns in the base of the mountain that could then be accessed from the top. Uh, and they even had these flaps or doors on the cisterns that would let water in but wouldn't let anybody else in. So you couldn't get in that way or take the city by surprise either, or the fortress by surprise. It it really was just about the most impregnable fortress in the entire province or region. Um, and it, it was the one place that if anything was going to survive, it was going to be Masada. Right. Well, and it's on top of this huge mountain, too. Everything else around it is so desolate as well. Yeah, there's nothing there. It's just lifeless void. So and even, salt desert. Even getting there alone would be a pain. Yeah. And we mentioned, too, in our, our last episode, the connection to Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Um, some historians believe that some of those who died at Masada in this final battle were Essenes from oh, wow, Qumran really? who had stashed scrolls in caves along the Dead Sea moving south toward Masada. Wow. They have not found any caves past Masada that contain scrolls. So it seems like they potentially fled Qumran, hiding as much as they could, as spread out as they could to protect it from Rome, yeah, right. and then making their last stand at Masada with everybody else. Wow. So yeah, it's only accessible, Masada, via two entrances, one of which isn't really helpful, and the other is the well-known snake path, which, as its name suggests, just kind of snakes up the mountain. But the problem with that is you have massive exposure out there. Anyone on the walls of the fortress can they have plenty of time to pick you off, right. and you're going to be exhausted by the time you reach the top, if you reach the top alive. Yeah. So it's just, there's, there should be no chance. And Rome still manages to win the day here. Well, easily, I'm sure, yeah. There's no way that they were going to be able to take out that city. Well, you would think it was easy, but it did take them a while. So we know there were just under a thousand people in Masada when the Roman legions finally appear on the horizon. Um, but Rome, Romans in particular, despite apparently being rather small in stature, excelled at organization in every form. Our guide was fond of telling us that everyone laughed when the Romans drew their tiny swords once. They only laughed once, and then they didn't live to tell the tale. 
Because Rome, Romans didn't look that big or impressive, but they were smart enough to still win just about everything. And the fall of Masada is one of the most potent examples of their power. So about 966 men, women, and children, some of whom may have been those Essenes from Qumran, sheltered there in relative safety while the rest of the country is going up in flames. Um, but then Flavius Silva, commander of the 10th Legion, approaches from the west, and that all changes. So they're up there thinking, we're safe, like, we'll just ride this out. Rome's not even going to mess with this. Like, there's no way they'd be that stupid. And Flavius Silva shows up on the scene, and he's like, oh, we're not the stupid ones here. So upon arriving, Rome begins this massive month-long campaign to build a six-foot-high wall around the entire mountain just to make sure that no one escaped. So they build a six-foot-high wall around the entire mountain. They build these perfectly square camps at different places along the wall. You, when you're on top of the mountain today, you can still see where these Roman camps were. You still see the squares and the stone wall. Wow. And because they're so precise in their engineering, every camp is a perfect square to maximize their ability to deploy their troops at a fast pace. Um, yeah, so the people at Masada now are seeing Rome build this wall, and they're like, okay, we're, we weren't going to try and run away, but fine. Um, and then Rome's setting up all these camps, and they're surrounded by this 10th legion. And that's where it really starts to get interesting. So Rome starts to build a ramp. They realize pretty quick that the snake path is not going to work out. The other entrance is not going to work out. So they're going to just make their own entrance. So they build, again, a precision-engineered ramp straight up to the top of this mountain, up to the wall, and engineer it at the perfect angle so it's the same all the way up. Um, and they do this just by moving dirt and reinforcing it with wooden beams. Um, and it's up from this western valley that should have been impossible to cross. And so the one side of the fortress that they're the least worried about is the side that their destruction comes from. Mm -hmm. So once the ramp is finished, Rome builds a siege tower and push that up the ramp, and then they proceed to break down the walls. So there's two layers of this casemate wall at the top. And prior to all this, and the people in Masada were so confident that they would take showers on the walls of Masada mooning the Roman soldiers below them in the process <laughs> and taunting them with their water from their cisterns That's because Rome, the soldiers would have been pretty thirsty. They didn't have that kind of access. And so they've spent months while the Romans are doing all this, just taunting them like you're never going to win. And then Rome gets to the top and the jokes on Masada. So yeah, here's where that shift in the wind comes to because while rome was busy breaking down the stone walls all right hang on we're right at our 30 minute limit i'm gonna all right sorry about that everybody and we're back and uh we get back into what we're talking about jordan yeah so rome breaks through these two layers of stone wall um with their siege tower and then they get to work on a third wooden wall that the Jewish rebels have thrown up in a last-ditch effort at defense. And instead of trying to smash through it, they're like, oh, it's wood, we'll just burn through it. 
So they shoot some flaming arrows at the thing, light it up, and uh, then the wind seems to shift in favor of the rebels, and the flames actually start burning the siege tower with the Roman soldiers on it. Nice. And everyone inside is like, it's a miracle, God's on our side, we're going to win. And then the wind changes, yeah, until just the wind like changes. at <laughs> And it actually burns down the wall that they had built. So this took a whole day to play out. Uh, light had faded by the time the wall was burnt down, and Rome was confident of victory. So they marched right back down their ramp, knowing that there's no way the Jews could escape. They built this wall. They had all these encampments around it. And so they figured, I oh, will just get a good night's sleep, celebrate now, and we'll get them in the morning. So they go, they sleep it off, and the next morning they show up and no one is alive. They walk in to noiseless emptiness and just see bodies everywhere. Jeez. And they're like, what just happened? So it turns out that, at least based on Josephus' account, again, the Jews decided that they would sooner die than have their families um, become slaves right. of the Romans and be raped and tortured and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they come up with a plan. Eleazar, the Jewish leader at the time, uh, supposedly gives this rousing speech about preferring death over slavery. And while not everyone agreed, uh, reason conquered passion, and men began to kill their families after long and loving embraces. So they give him a last hug and then run him through with the sword. Um, and then only 10 men remain. They all write their names on pot shards to essentially draw straws. And whoever drew the short straw had to kill everyone else and then fall on his own sword. Thus, according to Jewish belief, losing his resurrection by committing suicide. So the guy who drew the short straw was really out of luck. Because uh, based on Jewish beliefs, he was the only one who was going to be like condemned forever for that. It turns out, though, one wise old woman and five children did survive. Because uh, this old woman had concealed with her those children in one of the cisterns of the fortress. So while everyone else was being killed, this one woman and these five children did make it out alive and live to tell the tale. So that's why we're at least fairly confident of Josephus' story, because he was probably working with information that these survivors gave him. See, Masada has just this really dark and gruesome end to it. And when Rome got up to the top, they didn't celebrate. Uh, They didn't gloat over their enemies. They commended their courage and their resolve. Um, Yeah, they definitely put up a fight. Yeah, they put up a fight. They lasted a long time, and then they refused to let Rome have the last laugh and said, we're not even going to give you the satisfaction of an actual victory here. We're just going to end it ourselves. So pretty dark, pretty gruesome. Um, Interestingly, too, though, there is a synagogue up at the top of Masada. It's actually the oldest active synagogue in the world. The reason it's there is because Herod the Great, he was uh, half Jewish and half essentially Greek. Um, And so he had this weird split identity thing where even at the fortress of Herodian, 
that we mentioned in the last episode, right. you would find both a Roman bathhouse and a Jewish synagogue, a place of pagan worship and a place to worship God in the same fortress. That's same thing in Masada. But the synagogue there, they still have services in it today, which is insane. And they also found a parchment there in what's called the Genizah, which is where they would bury tattered old documents when the scrolls wore out, the scrolls that had scripture on them that they would read in the synagogue. Right. And the fragment that they found is a fragment that has Ezekiel's prophecy of the dry bones on it. Where Ezekiel's mm. prophesying to a field of dry bones, and basically God raises them to life again. And yeah, brings the bones back with their human flesh and breathes life into them. And it's this picture early on in the Old Testament prophets of right. future resurrection. And to find that scroll fragment there in a place that would have been full of bones, the place signifying oh, yeah. the Jews' final defeat, was no insignificant thing either. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yep, I've read that before. I've read that passage. So it's interesting to see that connection there. The actual Jewish bones. Yeah. Very similar to all the other stuff we've been talking about, and especially in the last episode, all these connections to the Bible with history and uh, in ways that you wouldn't expect sometimes. Yeah, it's it's not just some, like, out-there religious mythology text like it's very much grounded in history all throughout um and very much comes from the land it was written in mm-hmm. um and that land it was significant to the jews and still is significant to the jews to this day because it represented god's promise to them i'm sure like it was it was the place that he brought them that he gave them um and that he kept bringing them back to even after they would be defeated and exiled for centuries or millennia in the most recent case. Um, and so Masada, yeah, the end that's when Rome was finally like, we're calling this Palestine now uh, because that sounds like Philistine and we don't want Jews here anymore. Um, like you guys are done. That's we're going to ship you all, all over the world. And from then on, the Jewish, the Jewish people yep. were minorities everywhere. Yeah. The Jewish diaspora. Yeah. That's yeah. That's interesting. Let me get back into that connection. Uh, it we call it mythology, but all of these mythologies have at least some foundation in historical truth because there's something that they had to be based off of. Uh, it, it's less coming up with their head, coming up with it in their head, as it is more of them explaining something that they can't explain. Right. People didn't just make this stuff up. It all comes from somewhere. So I find that part especially interesting. Yeah. What's fascinating, too, because Masada became part of modern uh, Israeli history as well. Um, In fact, as this kind of new culture took shape among the Jews in the diaspora or the scattering, um, they... They learned how to be non-confrontational, how to get along with everybody as best they could because they're minorities everywhere now. They're a people without a place. Um, and the only way for them to survive is to get along with the people whose place they're in. Um, so then there's this shift 
since their return to the Holy Land, there's a change, um, at least according to our Jewish guide, from the Jew that turns the other cheek to the Jew that stands up and fights, mm -hmm. to use his words. And coincidentally, Masada was discovered right around the same time, and it became this representation of who Jews want to be, um, who modern Israelis want to be, so proud that they will not bow down even when all is lost. And Masada will never fall again became a battle cry during their war for independence. Wow. Masada okay. is so important in the cultural psyche of the country today that their nuclear program is called the Masada Project, <laughs> much like America's was called the Manhattan Project. Right. Um, and what was extra crazy is that as soon as our guide said that, uh, four Israeli F-15s flew by overhead. It's like, okay, a demonstration of modern military might That's to go with That's a little interesting. <laughs> yeah, some very strange timing on that one, to be sure. The yeah, Masada is just this, it's this major cultural representation. Of, it's um, not just history, it's a symbol. Right. We're never going to be defeated like this again, is basically what it means to them now. You got to have a rallying cry. That's definitely yep. the rallying cry. Yeah, that's interesting. It's sadly uh, tragedies and stuff like that that happen throughout history that are ultimately end up being the rallying cry and uh, the thing that starts making change. Indeed, it's it's a sad reality, but it's that's what it is. What it is. Yeah. When it shows you too, just the resilience of humans, right? Like the fact that. The Jews are still a people group today after everything that they've been through, um, multiple genocides and conquerings throughout history. Um, granted, there are only 16 to 17 million um, Jewish people in the world today, even though there were supposedly about three to four million, three to four thousand years ago Jeez. at the Exodus. Um, but the fact that this people group still lives on is an impressive testament to either their fortitude or the fact that maybe they are God's chosen people because no one else seems to have been able to survive that long. Right. That is that is interesting. Like you were saying, they've gone through gone through more than enough in their history, and they're they're still standing. Yeah, like the song. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. I found that found that very interesting. You have anything else you want to share with us before we wrap up? That's about it for the interesting stuff that I've got, at least that we have the time to talk about. Yeah, and then uh, if you ever have anything else, we can probably put it on the Facebook page or something, too. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Jordan. That was very interesting to hear, and uh, I hope the viewers like it. I think they will. I know I did. So... It's very interesting, the stuff that you brought up and the history you got to see over there. And uh, a lot of that stuff is a, is a testament to uh, centuries of human struggle and victory, and it's, uh, it's amazing. It really is a remarkable story. Not even just like the stuff you talked about today, but your whole trip sounds like it was definitely worth it, more, more than worth it. Oh, yeah. And it, I mean, especially... Yeah, it just, it's changed the way that I read the Bible today. Um, 
to have seen it with my own eyes and experienced the climate and the places and even just the topography of everything. It all makes a lot more sense to me now. Um, and that's a, that's a powerful thing. Right. Um, so much of our life as human beings is grounded in real places and real stories. And your stories really are a lot of what makes us who we are. Um, exactly. And so to get to understand some of these really significant stories better, I think is a, a meaningful thing. That's why it's important to know your history so we don't repeat it in the future. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for sharing with us, and we'll wrap this up, and thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. We'll wrap this episode up, and uh, again, Jordan, I thank you for sharing your experiences, and it was very interesting to hear. So. Yeah, thanks again for having me. All right. Next week, we'll have another episode on a historical subject. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be, but you guys should tune in. I'm sure it'll be another interesting thing. And uh, I've had no complaints so far. I think uh, everything we've talked about has uh, provided its own interest. And I'm, I'm a little biased because I'm the host, but I, th I think all of them have been pretty good. <laughs> yeah. As usual, I'd like to give a shout out to Anchor, our podcasting service that has been a miracle in making these episodes, and uh, we really couldn't have done it without it, because uh, we won't have the software to make these episodes for you guys. And uh, if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast as well, this is a great service to do that, and I, I really highly recommend it. It's been uh, pretty good besides a few technology issues here and there. Um, more importantly, like I was saying, I'd like to give a shout out to some of you guys as my listeners. And, uh, as we continue to embark along this podcast, uh, I thank you for the support you have shown on the Facebook page and all those who have been liking and following and commenting, commenting on the posts that we've been putting up there. It's been pretty good. So I thank you guys for that. And, uh, if you guys remember, if you have any specific questions you want to ask, don't feel free. Don't, feel free to uh, feel free to ask them. Don't hesitate, because that entire Confederate treasure series, that three-part series we did, was based on a listener's question. So, very well, make an episode on something if you have a question. All right, you got anything before we wrap up for today, Jordan? No, I'm all talked out. All right, sweet. <laughs> all right. All that being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is Jacob. And this is Jordan. All right. Carpe diem. <laughs>